You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from Technology Advice designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor. What would you say to someone who is complaining about how hard it is to find music albums on a CD these days? You'd probably be compelled to give them a little Spotify 101. The way we do a lot of things has changed in a lot of ways over the past decade, and that's as true of lead generation as much as it's true of music. I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice. If your lead generation programs aren't delivering the way they did, say, 10 years ago, or if people keep telling you that lead gen is dead, maybe what's really needed is to look at the types of programs that aren't working and seeing if there's a better way to design them for today's B2B landscape. In this episode of B2B Nation, Nathan Burke, CMO of Cybersecurity Asset Management Vendor Axonius, shares his thoughts on the five ways lead gen has changed in the past decade, marketing in the cybersecurity space, and more. Have a listen. Nathan Burke, welcome to B2B Nation. Why don't you take a minute and tell us who you are and what you do? Sounds good. Thanks for having me. So I am Nathan Burke. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at Axonius. We are the fastest growing cybersecurity company in history. There you go. It's that simple. (laughs) Nathan and I are both members of the Subterranean Working Club, basement offices. Uh, Both have gone with some sort of orange for the walls to try and brighten the mood a little bit. We're the mole people now. That's right. We probably both need uh, vitamin D supplementation. I take it every winter. (laughs) There you go. The only way. Doesn't change. Doesn't change the complexion. I'm. I'm still uh, not at all lacking. At all. Lacking it's, the sunlight on my face, but uh, long term it's better okay. for you than the tanning bed, though. So <laughs> yes. All right. I wanted to start talking with uh, lead generation. There are some pretty loud voices out there on LinkedIn and elsewhere who are less than kind to lead generation. Um, but I feel like when they talk about the shortcomings of lead generation. They're talking about Legion programs as they were done like 10 years ago. And I listen to them and I think, gosh, yeah, if that's what you're doing, yeah, you probably are pretty unhappy. So how has the way that you approach lead generation changed over the past, say, 10 years? Yeah, so I've got a couple of good examples. But before I get into that, it's funny because like I had this conversation with a peer at another company, um, I think it was just last week, and um, he was trying to justify his marketing budget and his headcount and all of that stuff. And we started talking and I, I just took a step way back and just tried to understand like, what is, what is the role of marketing in B2B and what do we do? And I tried to like boil it down as crisp and clear as I possibly could. And I think that the goal of marketing is to drive sales. And we do that through setting expectations. There's a, lot, a million other things we do, but those are the two things we do. We drive sales through expectation setting. So Looking at it through that lens, I think that there are like five things, and I'm sure I could come up with a hundred things, but I just jotted down five of them that have really changed dramatically in terms of lead gen in the past decade. So I think the first one, and I guarantee you're going to agree with me on this one, is the difference between specificity and numbers. And what I mean by that is it used to be in the dark ages, marketing was on the hook for getting names of people to pass on to sales. And It was a numbers game, right? We would go as broad and wide as possible. So if uh, I'm selling a product to security professionals, I'm just going to go super, super wide. Uh, Who cares if there's marketing and sales titles in there? doesn't matter. Uh, I'm just going to get a bunch of names. And that is what I hand to sales. And this is like the hamster wheel of doom between marketing and sales, right? Where sales is like the marketing leads are terrible and marketing is saying, well, if sales could just do their job, uh, these are great. 
we've all been there. Most of us hate that. I certainly hate that. But I think that's like, that's starting to die. I think now it's all about being specific, right? You may have a product, like I said, that is aimed at security professionals, but that even that alone is too broad, right? Are, are you going after security operations? Are you going after um, chief information security officers at financial services organizations? Are you going after incident responders at healthcare companies? They all have a different vocabulary. They've all got different requirements. They have compliance. They have a different way of looking at the world where being broad isn't working anymore. And I think, I don't think there's any pride in saying I, I handed over 10,000 leads that are totally irrelevant, but I take a lot of pride in, in handing over 500 that are exactly right for what we have. And it's just a perfect match. So I, I think that is like the big one. Um, I, I doubt there's any controversy in that. So I think the, the numbers game versus being really specific um, has changed everything about lead gen. I'm happy to like pause on these. I've got a, I've got five of them, but if you want to like, if you want to stop me there, go ahead. I just, I was just going to say that I've heard the numbers game referred to as annoying the many to convert the few. Yeah. Because it's not just, there are people there that are useless to your sales team, but you kind of dragged your brand through the mud there. Sure. You're You're wasting everyone's time. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I, and so that, that leads me to my second note, which is meeting leads where they are in the process. Right. So you know, like you're saying, I think everyone early in their career, whether they're marketing or sales, you see something with a pulse and you just want to jump on them and sell to them. Like the first time you see that heartbeat and a person downloading a white paper is probably not ready to buy anything. Um, Or somebody that went to your thought leadership webinar, they're not ready to make a purchase. And I think if you know where they are and just give them enough information to lead them where they want to go, instead of trying to force them into a sales conversation, again, it doesn't waste the time of the sales rep, the prospect, you, um, it's just the wrong way to do it. And so I think that is something that's, that's really important in security specifically. The third one, people that are listening are going to be like, this, this can't be, we must be recording this in 1990, but even in 2022 in security, not a lot of vendors show you the product. They don't, it, it, it's, it's mind blowing to people that come to industries like this, um, from like a consumer's perspective where you think, of course, I'm going to show the product all the time. But the philosophy used to be just put up a form, capture their contact details. Sales is going to sell them something. Um, that's <laughs> going away. It should go away. And I think the easiest way to show the difference is ask yourself, what, what sales conversation would you rather have? A, something where you have to explain what the product is, give them the full set of features before you ever show the product, or the call that is, how do I do this with your product that I already have access to? Totally different conversation. You skip three other calls. It saves everyone time and you're helping them do what they, they're trying to do in the first place rather than trying to convince them to try the thing. It's, uh, it is the only way forward. What do you, why do you think that is? What, what's the reluctance to show the product? Because I think that, that used to be the old way of it was, and, and you know I think when we, we start talking in, in a while um, about, you know, what has changed. And um, I think part of it is just this whole idea around, you know, information asymmetry, right? Like I have all the information, you have none. And in that world, I can make you fill out my form and I can make you sit through my slides and I can make you do four different scoping calls. But now everyone can say anything they want. I can go to five different vendors that are seemingly the same. And if I don't see a product that I can try, I'm on to the next one. 
Um, so that I think the, also just the way that we purchase things has changed so much that vendors had to follow suit and we've got to change the way that we let people experience our product rather than just getting, you know, a PDF download of a product sheet that's, that's dead and it should be. All right. Four. And then I've only got two more. I wrote these notes out because I was like all caffeinated this morning, which is measure on pipeline, not MQLs and SQLs. It doesn't make any sense to do that. I think it's scary for us as marketers to, to put ourselves um, in the conversation of how much pipeline we drove, but talking about MQLs and SQLs, it's kind of like, you know, let's say that you ran, how about a bakery? You ran a bakery. And instead of talking about the loaves of bread, you, you're measuring yourselves on how much flour you bought. It, that, like, why would, you, why would you do that? <laughs> so why would you talk about MQLs and SQLs? They're means to an end. It's not, there's no intrinsic value of that to, to sales, but instead, whether they convert, whether they turn into something, that's really what you're trying to do. And then my final one, and I'm going to take a breath and probably a drink of water, is brand, brand, and then more brand. Because like you said, in, in this increasingly crowded world um, where anybody can say anything and sound exactly like everyone else, you got to find a way to stand out. Like if I'm, if I'm a security buyer and I go through the biggest conference, which is uh, RSA and there's 40,000 people and I go through the expo hall, I have no idea what to believe. Everyone sounds exactly the same. So I don't know how I would tell the difference. And, and to me, the only way to do that as, as a vendor is to be able to be clear, be unique and stand out and do it in a way that actually represents what you're trying to sell instead of making some kind of claims that no one can verify. And, and only that way will someone remember at the time where they're actually trying to solve that problem. On that note about RSA and the security market, let's talk a little bit about where your company plays and the challenges you face getting your message out there and, and standing out, like you said. What are the biggest marketing challenges for you and just as a player in the security industry? So I'll start with where we play because it's it's definitely a little bit different. Um, and I'll start with a story because why not? Other, otherwise, uh, I'd be boring. But I'll never forget the first conversation I ever had when I joined Exonia. So I was the first US employee. I started before we had a product. I've never had that luxury before. I loved it. And so I just spent a lot of time talking to security professionals about the, the problems they had, how they, they kind of lived the problem that we were looking to solve. And so that first call, uh, I was on the phone with uh, a chief information security officer at this massive, massive company, like a household name company, hundreds of thousands of employees. You'd know it if I, if I told you. And I was naive. And so the first thing I asked her, I said, tell me, how many, how many devices do you have in your company? And it was just silence. I'm like, I guess, did, did they hang up or did something go wrong? And about 45 seconds later, it was nothing but laughter. She just started laughing like maniacally. And she said, I have no idea. And if anyone tells you they know how many devices they have, they're lying to you. And I'm like, all right, I guess this really is a problem. And, you know, obviously with a few years of, of living this every day, now it makes a lot of sense. But, you know, when you think about it, the, the bigger the company or the more complex the organization the more people you have, the more things like devices you have. And if you have more devices and device types, like you have now cloud and SaaS applications and mobile devices and, you know, your laptop servers, all, all of the IOT devices, you have all these different devices. And then you have solutions that you buy and implement to 
manage and secure them. And so you end up having all of these different tools that all cover like one tiny specific subset of, of your environment. And those things don't talk together. And so it makes it really difficult to answer those questions. Like how many Windows devices do I have? Or do I have cloud instances that are misconfigured and not being scanned? Or users with incorrect permissions? Like all these questions are seemingly easy, but at a big scale and with things changing so, so much, it becomes really hard. But the beauty of that is all the data is there. You have all these different tools, but they're just different silos. So our whole idea is if we can just connect to all of these, these different tools that our customers are already using, we can bring in all that data, we can correlate it and make sense of it all. And then we can do really three things. So first we can give them a comprehensive inventory of all their assets. If we can do that. We can then give them queries to um, ask questions across all of those different sources to understand anything that doesn't fit your policy or that has the wrong permissions or anything like that. And then finally, we can give them automated actions to decide what to do anytime something deviates from their policy. So that's like the super, super high level of what we do. Um, but I will say this is that when we started, what we did had no category. There just wasn't one. And I'll, I'll never forget, I, I did our first round of analyst calls. I did 18 of them. And it would be, you know, I, I don't cover this. Uh, I, I don't know what this is. Go talk to this person. And we talked to that person and then they sent us to somebody else. And I just kept doing it. Felt like pushing a rock uphill. And then finally, uh, we got to someone and he's like, you know what? You guys are like a platypus. Like, go on. I like this. Tell me more. <laughs> okay. He's like, you've got a bill, but you're not a duck. You've got fur, but you're in the water. Like you're not any of these things. You're this like unique, weird thing. And I'm like, I love that. We're a platypus. Okay. <laughs> um, and we were a platypus that we called uh, cybersecurity asset management. And so we came up with, with that term. And, you know, now four years later, there's a lot of different companies using that. And uh, Gartner came up with their own term July of last year. So we're at the very beginning of a hype cycle. So, uh, so now it's like a term that really is out there, but um, at the very beginning, it was very much us trying to create this thing to describe a way that we're doing something that's just totally different out there. And I think that dovetails nicely into your question, which is, you know, what are the challenges? I think there are really two things. One is creating something that doesn't fit nicely into a category that people don't have an expectation that they're going to budget for, that really you have to define it and, and let them know that this is something that can solve a problem. So that's, that's the first one. And then, then the second really is scale. So I, I said at the beginning, by all accounts, we're the fastest growing cybersecurity company in history. We only started the company in 2017. We had the first version of the product in 2018. 2019, we um, won the RSA Innovation Sandbox. And now we have 400 employees worldwide. Last year, we were named to the Forbes Cloud 100. On average, it took companies from founding to getting to unicorn status eight and a half years, we did it in less than half. So we're just growing so, so fast. And that's not a, that's not like a humble brag. It's a, there, it's hard, like getting to this scale this fast and then taking it global. I think that there's a lot of inherent challenges in that. So happy to talk about any of those in, in specifics, but yeah, it is just this massive rapid growth that is really difficult. We've talked about the, the category creation challenge before on B2B Nation. There's some people who at the start are like, we're going to 
define our own category. We're different from everybody else. There's pros and cons to that, right? The the cons is, like you said, you're going out there telling people you're a platypus and they're like, what the heck's a platypus? Well, um, yeah, there, there are definitely <laughs> pros and cons, but it, it also depends on if if you're forced to, right? So for us, like, we didn't really have a choice because there was nothing that we could even connect to to say we're like this, but a little bit different. Um, because even the things that we were like tangentially related to were so far away that we would say we're like a knack solution, except for we don't have to be on any machine and we don't stop anything. And we, and so when you say we're like this, but then there's 57 other reasons we're not, we just ended up in this scenario where we had to, if it's, if it's a situation where you're a new version of something else, that's just slightly different by 13%, then definitely pros and cons. And, you know, I could argue one way or the other, but I, I feel like in this case, we didn't really have a choice. So you mentioned earlier, uh, if you were a buyer, you'd be completely confused. <laughs> yeah. But how has the buying process changed in B2B tech since you've been in this business? And what does that mean for the marketing that you do now? Yeah. Um, and I think this speaks to a lot of what we already talked about. And it's this idea of information asymmetry, right? Where it used to be the buyers didn't have the information. Think about when you go to buy a car, right? I don't know if the price that they gave me is any good. I'm just kind of going in blind and, and trusting and having faith that, that they're treating me fairly, which is not a great position to be in. But that used to be B2B buying, right? No one shows their prices. You don't know who's using it. You don't know if you're getting a better deal than someone else. You don't know if they're holding back features or, or you don't know anything. And that's gone. I think that fundamentally changes the way that you go to market. And I think, you know, I'll just give a, a very small example. Uh, I mentioned before that not a lot of security companies let you try the product. Another reason that they don't do that is, well, I don't want my competition to see it. Your competition can spend seven bucks, get a domain and a Google account and sign up and you don't know it's them, right? So a lot <laughs> of the, the things that we felt like insulated us from competition, from the word getting out, like forget that it's gone. And so if you realize that you're operating in a world that anybody can get information, whether it's from you or someone else, and maybe you'd rather have it come from you because they're going to get it from your competitors. I think that changes the way you do things. And so we do self-service trials. Our whole documentation site is completely open. No login, doesn't matter. Any, any, any competitor can see it because I feel like if a competitor can see our screenshots or even play with our product, they can't reverse engineer it and build it on their own. Like that isn't a very compelling or, or defensible product. So to me, it's all about open. And I also think that when you take the standpoint of open by default and public by default, you're also able to take advantage of inbound a lot more, right? Where you've, if everything is open, then you're going to capitalize on search terms. You're going to write posts about that also point to your trials or your demo requests. So it just, it, it fundamentally changes the way that you structure your demand gen and your inbound and your content and everything else and your relationship to sales and what you give them. So, so to me, like it just changes everything. Yeah. The, the, it used to be a very symbiotic relationship, right? It was uh, buyer. I need information and vendor. Well, I have that information, but now it's just, there's so much available everywhere. And, you know, we saw it happen in B2C. The example we like to use here is, you know, music has changed 
how we buy music has changed like twice in my lifetime and I'm not that yeah. old. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's exactly right. What do you think we'd be talking about if we had this conversation a year from now? Because you're at a company that you just said is growing leaps and bounds. There's still a little bit of, well, maybe not a little bit, a lot of unpredictability as far as the pandemic and in-person events and all that stuff. Take a guess. Early 2023, speaking of being old, um, <laughs> what do you think we'd be talking about? Yeah, I, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is... Will we ever really have a return to in-person events the way they used to be? I know that's it's kind of a small thing, but I think it is important. And I think we've all reached that saturation point on making everything digital. No one wants to do any more digital events that are basically a Zoom call masquerading as something else. Um, we've been through that. I'm sure everyone listening to this has seen the the attendance rates drop off precipitously. There's no more cameos or celebrity guests that are compelling enough for someone to spend an hour with you when they know it's just going to be a veiled demo of your product. So the question is, are we, are we going back to in-person? Is hybrid a thing that is here to stay? And if so, how do we change the way that we present ourselves digitally in a way that's more interesting that isn't just a come to Cyberfest, which is just an Exonius demo, and we're just going to show you the product and nothing else. But if you want, we'll send you some uh, AirPods. Like, I don't think we've evolved as fast as the way our prospects consume information about us. I mean, granted, it's only been like two years, but still, how, how will everything change? And is in-person now something that is only going to take place, can only justify going to one conference a year versus the four that you went to? or the small in-person events in regions, maybe those things light back up. But I think the, the real question is, as we return to normal, hopefully, how does that impact what we do, how we interact with people, both face-to-face -face and virtually? I have not been able to predict in-person events. I mean, nobody has, right? No. There's certainly been times of the past years where we thought, oh, in the next few months, we'll, we'll see it, and no. But I have wondered from time to time, do you just have to tear it down and start over and reach out to your clients who were in a metropolitan area and say, hey, we're going to do this thing in the city. We're going to buy you dinner. We're going to yeah. talk shop and just start there and see at what point people are just like, nope, you're asking too much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that I when I think about it, I think of I split in-person events in two things. One is like the big conferences. And that's where I have the biggest question mark. And the other is like the small you know, let's have a dinner. Um, I think there's, uh, there's hunger for both of them. But the thing about the, the big conferences, even if you only go to one in a year, it's the one time a year that you get to see all your friends, all the people that you only see one time a year and you get to catch up with them and you just can't do that any, any other way. And like, when I think about it, conversations I've had at, at RSA with people, you couldn't replicate that on, on a Zoom call with a vendor watching and recording, or even if it was just like, no vendors allowed just a, a, like a part of an association or something. Those conversations aren't the same. There's just something that is more spontaneous that you can't capture looking through a screen. I, I don't know what it is. I, I can't figure it out, but it's almost like every time you come to something like this in, in a Zoom, there's an agenda, there's, there's an expectation of when I can talk or what the um, structure of the conversation is that doesn't allow for, you know, you're talking about, how the football season ended 
there's just, there's something that isn't there about the spontaneous interaction that is just, I miss it so much to the point where I'm looking forward to Black Hat this year. And I'll tell you, I've never looked forward to being in Las Vegas in August when it's 165 degrees, but I am this year. Do you think, I mean, in security, you mentioned Black Hat and you mentioned RSA. Yep. Two big events that kind of dominate the security space. Yep. Do you think that that makes a difference when you talk about in-person events, whereas in, if you work in kind of a broader IT, data center, cloud role, there's like two dozen events, three dozen events, right? But security, it's like, it's still pretty focused on maybe a handful of events. And yeah, so there are like a lot of smaller ones, but those are the big ones where you, you see everything. And, and I, the other thing that I think you don't spend a lot of time thinking about is this, like, let's put yourself in the shoes of, of that security person, right? You have to buy products. You need stuff, right? It's not like it's just a total pain in the ass every time you talk to a vendor. But I've got, the, I've got a list of my priorities for 2022. Now, I could either go to individual websites and talk to a bunch of people and sit through an hour-long demo and uh, you know do that thing. Or I'm going to be seeing my friends at RSA and Black Hat anyway. I'm going to go do some training. Then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend an hour. And I'm going to plow through the, the vendor hall. I'm going to go through my short list. I'm going to say, give me a three-minute demo because that's all I can, I can do instead of the 30-minute or hour-long. I'm going to go through my short list and pick up a t-shirt and a fidget spinner and something for the kids. Like there's, there's definitely value in that. So I think there's always going to be uh, a place for those huge conferences where I can get a bunch of stuff off my list in one place. And there's just a lot of value to that. And then there's also going to be those much smaller things. And there's a ton of those little, like much smaller events. Like you're saying, I think there's a place for both of them, but the one of how much value do I get out of spending two days and getting all of this stuff done all at once, I get to see my friends and, you know, get to watch somebody juggling uh, chainsaws while handing out drinks. You don't get a lot of those. There's that control thing too. Like here I am at your booth. I'm giving yeah. you three minutes. What are you going to yeah. do for me? Right? That's it. Yeah. So what do you do? Tell me in three minutes. You got it. Let's go. Yep. That's not, you don't get that interaction, right? It's why don't you go to this page or download this? And no, that's not. Yeah. How does, how does your calendar look next Wednesday for 45 minutes? That's what you get. <laughs> What is your favorite tool? What is the thing that you cannot work without? And we always ask people, don't say your phone unless you're citing a specific app and you're allowed to make something up. So go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to make something up. Um, I never go with the easy answer. So what I want is this tool. It is a tool um, that, you know, kind of like Exonius. It grabs data from all these different sources and puts it all together in a way that I can answer specific questions. And I'll tell you what they are. So I want to know, for any customer that closed in Q4 2021, uh, I want to know where the first person came from. I want to know the person that showed up that, uh, that caused the conversion to an opportunity. I want to know all of the steps in between. I want to understand from each source and all of the spend data on my campaigns. I want to see a full view of every single thing that happened that caused someone to become a customer. And then on the other end of it, I want to say, we do a lot of webinars. Are they only really for moving someone that's already in my database to becoming a customer? Or are they a great source of lead gen at the top of the funnel that does convert? 
I don't want to say that I'm going to do a bunch of webinars because it gives me 100,000 names, but nothing happens. I want a full view of everything from very beginning all the way to the end, but tied together at a campaign level view so I can know if I've got $1 or one headcount or a little bit more capacity and time for my team, where am I going to spend that to get the most out of it? If I'm either saying I need net new logos, I need retention, I need conversion. I want all of that right there in front of me. And if you're listening and you have this, I'd like to, I'd like to talk to you, even if it's 45 minutes on Wednesday. <laughs> all right, Nathan Burke, thanks for joining us here on B2B Nation. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks again to Nathan Burke for appearing on B2B Nation. If you found this episode helpful or insightful, subscribe to B2B Nation on Apple, Google, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Thanks to the technology advice team, Amy Dunn, Sarah Sanders, KJ Pace, Carolyn Wishar, and Emily Whalen. Mnemonics in the Guild composed our theme song. We'll catch you next time on B2B Nation. 